Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, we'll start with questions um, from students here. So if anyone wants to come up and kick us off. You, you know, subhanAllah, uh, the, um, it, it might be that we, we covered Surah Qaf today as, as some commentators have described Surah Qaf as Surah Al-Irtiqa. Yeah. Um, maybe some of you want to go through the path of Al-Irtiqa. Okay. Okay, so my question is regarding when you were talking about um, making your higher self visualize. Can you explain more about that? Is that that we are spending more time with the Qur'an and visualizing the Qur'an, or are we specifically spending time in visualizing things that would feed our higher self? The, the, well, in the, usually the reference in, this, in the passage that I read, what, what they are talking about is that in every occurrence in life, in every eventuality in life, if you freeze frame, if you do, if you, if cough means cough, like stop, um, and you pause, and you say, I'm going to visualize what my higher self would say or do, and what my higher self would say or do. Now, is there an archetype personality for every human being that Allah creates for the, the people that are of that orientation? And, and, I, and I actually do believe that. Is that, yes, there, there, for the archetypally, there is an archetype of your higher self and your lower self. But what the process itself is that in every eventuality, you say, what would the higher self look like? What the lower self would look like? And this, I mean, so even if, uh, I mean, uh, even if you're, if you're, eating. <laughs> You'd say, okay, what would my higher self be? What would my lower self be? Uh, so it becomes a, um, a habit. And it's remarkable when you read in the, the literature of those who adopted the methodology and internalized it and pursued it. Um, it, it does, I mean, because when, when there is no limit to goodness, in the same way, there's no limit to the abyss that you can fall through. So when people get into the habit of visualizing that, they really do become on, in, in, a, in a dynamic of elevation. Because if any, you know, it might be that initially your higher self would just be, well, my higher self wouldn't be in a good, bad mood, and I would smile at people and say good morning. So that's my higher self when I just wake up, let's say. And, but then once you achieve that, your higher self becomes much more than that. 
your higher self might be much more than just smiling and saying good morning. Um, and that's the process of Ratqa. And that's, that's how beautiful people are formed. And that's why Surah Qaf is, I mean, it, Muslims get accustomed to see, reading Surah Yasin, for instance, in, in funerals. But Surah Qaf is in the heart of every mystical path that I have ever studied. Um, Intern memorized, internalized, studied over and over and over again. Does that answer the question? Anybody else in in here? Come on, Joe. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Sheikh. Um, it's a question about some of the vocabulary in the passage, say, verses 17 to 21. Um, we have al Sa'iq, Shahid, Parin, and as we were explaining, all of these can be interpreted in, in different ways. But what what kicks this all off is verse 16 when it says, um, Allah says, to us we be nifsu. Could all of these later terms, has anyone interpreted these as different aspects of our nafs in the hereafter? Yeah. Our good, in, our good impulse, our bad impulse, our conscience, our whims, our desires, our, you know, it all kind of makes a harmonious whole. Right. That, that right. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the, the point Joel was making is that the you, you have this series of... Uh, the Raqib, the Shaheed, the Sa'iq, uh, the Qareen. But what precedes all of that is verse 16, which talks about Tawaswisu bihi nafsu. And so Joe's asking, did anyone say, did anyone uh, uh, read the the references to the Qareen, to the Shaheed, to the Sa'iq, to all of that as aspects of the self. And the answer is yes. If you read Ibn Arabi, um, not just, I mean, even if, if the tafsir that is printed, the, uh, the two-volume tafsir of Ibn Arabi is, the attribution to Ibn Arabi is contested, but even if you read what he says in the Futuhat al Makiyah, uh, about that, or if you read someone like Ismail Haqqi, who's clearly influenced by Ibn Arabi, although he often refers to Qashani, but not Ibn Arabi, but it's clearly influenced by Ibn Arabi. Um, um, or you read someone like Tustari. Um, all of these fellows, um, there is actually another one, hold on, did I know? There's uh, al-Baqari, um, they, they see these references as aspects of the self, that they, they, they ultimately think that, or the, the way that they read it, 
is that while you do have a meticulous keeping record that is kept, but ultimately you your Korean is I mean you know in German the double ganger your Korean is your double ganger the 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 self that could either be beautiful or horrible and the Sa'iq is your passions that have driven you in life visualized and materialized and um, and so they they are I don't it's not that they're skeptical of the presence of angels because they do believe that there's an angel that that records everything but that they see all of these as symbolic references to the self that you construct or the selves that will be constructed and confronted with in the hereafter. Um, now they go, of course, they, I mean, they, you, you can they go into great elaboration about this and, um, and great levels of of sophistication, but they, it, it's r remarkable that they, at the time before we are aware of energy fields or electricity and so on, they, they or magnomagnetic, uh, electromagnetic uh, energy fields, they, they believed that you, you actually construct like a hologram of the self um, through your 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 passions and your deeds and uh, these are things that will confront you um, and they, there's even more elaboration where they say like instance that the worst of hellfire is that when you, your your evil deeds become visualized for the true reality, and that you confront these deeds. So, um, which is something really scary. I mean, if you if you imagine the worst thing a person could do, and then you you believe you, you try to imagine that that becomes visualized in an actual construct, and that. So, if, I imagine if someone kills someone, for instance. Is that going to, are you going to be confronted with a hologram that keeps murdering you over and over? Yes. Come on. Uh, go for it. Sorry, I'm hogging. No, no, sorry. Thank you, Sheikh. Would, would that not fit neatly or correspond to what we've covered in previous surah, surah to tour, when we're talking about the Hillman and the Hor and Ain? Um, but then it was noticeable that when you mentioned um, Karim, you took the kind of um, ritualist or to the, or yeah. kind of, no, it's a demon. Whereas yeah. in previous sword, we've kind of been not bashing the ritualist, but you know, kind of. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's, Can you uh, that, paraphrase? Yeah, I mean, you're saying that, okay, well, in, we, we encountered this in previous swords when, for instance, we talk about the Ghilman or Hur al Ayn, and consistently, People like Ibn Arabi, I mean, clearly didn't understand Quran as um, 
they, they saw them as constructs of, of the best self. And, you know, the man similarly, as I, I, if I remember, I read a passage about the the man that again they're, they're a construct. Um, but I think George asking why when it came to Korean I chose the more literal approach that they're actual demons rather than what um, people like Tustari and others say that you know they're 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 actually a, a construct of of your worst self. To be quite honest with you, uh, in part because of, as I studied the traditions on what the Qareen is, I cumulatively saw, became convinced that there, that there is enough evidence supporting the idea that it is an actual demon. And then the other part is because of the experiences I had in life. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, um, truly evil people have something. Now, I, I could have been deceived. It's possible that what I saw was not a demon or demons because it was more than one, but an actual like construct that, but it was just so evil uh, and presented itself like a dark shadow, um, darker than dark, foul smelling, that it just, uh, and these experiences is what just made me say, no, there, there is a demon. Um, I mean, it's unnerving to live life thinking that that could happen, but, yeah. I, I, in many ways, I wish that I believed that a Korean was just a construct. Um, it, it would be much, far more uh, comfortable. So I remember when you gave the tafsir on Surat Yasin, you were saying that Ya and Sin are Ya and San. And then with uh, Surat Al-Qaf, um, the cause, you know, starts with the many attributes of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala that are super powerful. And I was wondering if that can be applied to Suwar where like Alif Lam Mim or Alif Lam Ra or Alif Lam Mim Sad or things like that. Like, are the attributes, there's so many attributes of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala that are like, Rahman um, al-Rahim, al-Malik, you know, like al-Malik al-Salam, al-Mu'min, al-Muhaymin, yeah, like so. If those letters are they, is it a possibility that those letters are also indicating towards some of the ninety-nine of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's attributes, or is this with Surah Qaf the exception, not the rule? Um, Can you repeat the question? Yeah, it, the, the, question. The, the question is whether, since it's Surat Qaf, um, the, the, many said that it refers to the attributes, Asma'u Allah, or the names of Allah that uh, are like uh, uh, um, 
القادر القيوم القدوس these 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 attributes of power and presence power and presence god is present god is powerful so can we say then that other letters like alif lam mim uh, alif lam ra also refer to attributes of god um yes and no because we just have to wait to we get to each one of these sort because sometimes they do sometimes they refer they always refer to um fundamental basic foundational truth sometimes this is god god's self or things necessary to reach god or actual asma'ullah the names of god uh, so in sad as we inshallah will see uh, they say that that refers to summoned and the surah is very much about the summoned um, Um, I'm trying to remember some other examples. Just for the sake of, since you've brought up, here is the alternatives. I mean, I've, I've talked about some of what people said about the meaning of Qaf, especially in relation to the names of Allah, right? And, oh, um, so for instance, I, I just remember. So Saad, for instance, which starts one of the Sawar is, um, they say it refers to Samad, but when there is a mention of the letter Shein, uh, that it refers to Ashq, to love, love of Allah. Um, or, so, he, uh, I'll just go very quickly about, about all that has been said about Qaf because I actually tried to make a, a list for myself. So some said that, as we said, that it, it refers to the names of Allah, like Al-Quddus, Al-Qadr, Al-Qahar, Al-Qarib, Al-Qabid, Al-Qadi, Al-Qayyum, and so on. Some said that it is Ta'aql, that the, the intellect that is necessary for understanding the Quran and for realizing the divine. As we talked about, some said that it is a command, qif, stop and reflect, because what we're going to give you requires deep reflection. Some said, no, qaf refers to i'mal bil-Quran wa Qaf refers to, so qif inda maqam al-Quran, as they say, that it is a reference to pause and reflect upon the Quran and follow the Quran itself. Some said that, and here they rely on pre-Islamic linguistic usage, Qaf means Qudi al-Amr. It's the reference to the ultimate truth, things have been settled. The, the, the absolute truths have already been set. 
death, resurrection, accountability, unwavering. Some said no qaf means bihaqq qalam, that it is a reference to the qalam, to the 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 qalam itself could mean intellect, by the way, but the qalam could also be in the 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 instrument by of that that is um, that gave the Allah utilized for Allah al-Mahfuz, for the sacred tablet, and for the Quran, and for all reality, recreation. And someone, and I, I didn't cover this one, Qaf said means Qurbullah min al-Wareed, that it refers specifically to Allah's closeness. In reference to the ayah says Allah is closer to you than your juggling ring. So it, it starts out with cough to to alert you to that. Now when when you find all these alternative um, references to one thing, often what they rely on are various reports that go to various either companions or successors of the Prophet that say, you know, we've heard such and such companions say that this is what cough means, or we, sometimes we've heard that the Prophet said that this is what cough means, or that one of the companions like Ibn Mas'ud or, or Ibn Abbas said that this is what cough means, but doesn't tell us why he says that this means. Sometimes the the understanding of cough doesn't go to an actual report because for transmission reasons they, they reject all the reports and go back to the language itself. And the, the various usages within the language and then they say, well, this makes sense in connection with the rest of the surah. Um, My own inclination in understanding Surah Qaf is that it refers to the heart and the maqamat. Um, Allahu alam, Allah knows best. But that, that's what I, in living with Surah Qaf, in supplicating upon Surah Qaf uh, in studying the impact of Surah Qaf um, in many ways it was a mystical elevation, a spiritual elevation that prepared people for the ultimate test and that is the Isra' wal Maraj because now they're, they're going to have to imagine the 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 gap between the material world and, un and the unseen world, the non-material world, breached by the Prophet ﷺ in this night of Isra and Mi'raj. And the Qur'an, without question, was preparing Muslims for that event. And 
those that had elevated themselves to understand something about the world of the unseen accepted that event. And those who hadn't clearly weren't able to handle it and, and thought that, no, we, we can't accept it. So, but as always, I mean, there in, when we talk inshallah about Surah Al-Muzammah, there's a passage that um, one of the commentators says that the Qur'an, every ayah in the Qur'an has a hundred different meanings. And the layers of meaning address different eventualities, but also different levels of depth depending on the, the receiver, the person who's actually interacting with the Qur'an. Uh, how intelligent and how pure. Okay, in the previous halakha, the professor said coercion is shirk, and we saw a similar concept expressed today. My intuitive understanding is that to force someone is to ignore Allah's continuous reminder that we do not have power over those who do not want to listen. We are essentially superimposing our ego and arrogance in thinking that we can change something that is only in God's control. Is this a correct understanding of this idea? Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, law can coerce as a secular matter, as a matter of, of law and order, as a matter of the demands and dictates of justice for society in a temporal sense. But when it, when it comes to one's relationship with Allah, uh, coercion is like poison. It was never allowed, the Prophet Allah never permitted it to the Prophet. Um, and it was never permitted to anyone else. The, the coercion breeds hypocrisy. The nature of it is that if you coerce people to be pious, they will become addicted to hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is lethal. It, it's, um, it, it teaches people to, to perform the religiosity rather than taking it seriously and actually it meaning anything. They, they just literally perform it. And I think that actually if you look at a lot of our Muslim um, interactions, I mean in, in, in our social interactions, um, I mean, I mean, particularly Islamic conferences and Islamic centers and so on. There is just, it's plagued by the performance of religiosity in ways that are often just sharply contradictory and hypocritical. Um, it's as if the appearance of piety is far more important than the meaning of piety, and it marks so much of, uh, of, of what we do and how we do it and things. Um, even the way that we teach people the Quran, 
you know, we teach people correct pronunciation, the rules of this, the rules of that. But how many people recite the Quran but don't know what it means? And have no clue how to translate the Quran into real life? Um, I think that's tragic. And that all comes from a culture of coercion. I think despotism, despotism has been a true curse on the Muslim Ummah. Whether that despotism came from internally or came externally from colonial powers or semi-externally by colonial powers putting in power um, uh, agents for colonialism uh, in so many Muslim countries. The militaries that rule. I mean, they, they rule, but their, their, their intellect, their mind, is thoroughly shaped by the epistemology of colonialism, not by anything that is native. It, you know, when you have an Egyptian president like Sisi come and say, it is, you know, it cannot be that Muslims who are one-third of the world's population, they want to kill everyone so they can live. Where does that come from? I mean, this is a military officer that rules a country like Egypt. That comes from a thoroughly Islamophobic point of view. But it tells you that the minds of these people who coerce, who, who create societies of coercion, because where things where, where things matter, every you know you look around in, from Egypt to Syria to um, 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 Algeria to Saudi to the Emirat to uh, all these Muslim countries to Iran to all of these Muslim countries, it, it's the logic of coercion, and yet the Quran warned us about coercion like poison, and said, "Don't do that to yourself." It is a tragedy. It is a real tragedy. It, 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 they, I've said before, I think, in one of the classes, that when I first came to the United States, all the people, that my friends that I knew that uh, came to the States in the same year, all those who were taught to pray and be pious because they feared their parents, the minute they came to the States, they were doing all the stuff that's haram. Mm -hmm. I was taught by my parents to uh, to be religious out of self-respect, and it, it was just it was an educational, painful educational experience to see how many just very quickly, the minute they they felt freedom, they experienced freedom it translated into disobeying God. It's really sad. Any questions in here? Okay. Thank you, Professor in the Institute. Today you discussed the opportunity of repentance before the sin is recorded, and you mentioned istif istifqar. Is that process of repentance formal like prayer is, 
And if so, how is it done? Or is it an informal but serious conversation with Allah seeking forgiveness? The, the, this process of istighfar, the, the, the sin is not recorded if you repent. Uh, it, it is actually if you intend, if you say, I will not do it again and you ask Allah for repentance and your intention is pure, then it is not recorded. Where you get into dangerous grounds if you keep repeating that, uh, then your repentance might not be taken seriously. But if um, there's some beautiful material about the, the, basically the, 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 that um, you know whether you take it literally or figuratively that uh, the, the angel on the right tells the angel on the left uh, to hold on don't record it yet maybe they will repent maybe they will come back and keeps urging the angel on the left not to do so until it becomes clear that repentance is going to become. The idea, whether you take it literally or not, the idea is that Allah is not eager to count sins against you. And only sins against you are counted only when you, are, you, you leave one with no choice but to record these sins. If you intend not to do something and you ask Allah for repentance, even whether whether you do it in prayer or you do it, and 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 I actually think you know pray what you pray, but then sit and just in a session with Allah and truly declare your intent not to do it again and say, Allah forgive me. You are the most forgiving. Forgive me. And that's repentance. <clears throat> Two related questions. How should we think about unintended consequences of our actions? For those of us in policy or law, making prescriptions for large numbers of people can be difficult. I imagine we can trust Allah and seek guidance, which brings me to my second question. How do we know when our guidance is divine and not our fear, ego, or another force? You know, the, the first, the intended consequences, you know, the concept of foreseeability um, is really remarkably pertinent here, in, even in the Islamic context, because I remember when I, when I studied law in, in the United States and read about foreseeability and legal responsibility, the thing that just struck me is I've already read this material in the Islamic tradition that was written centuries before. If, if it is, if, I mean, very much so, if, it, if you could reasonably foresee the harm that re would result, then you're responsible. Um, now, there are, there are special rules, like if you're especially intelligent, so you have a heightened responsibility because you can see what other people cannot see. But that's 
or if you're especially dull and you really can't see things, things are not foreseeable to you. But the idea of foreseeability is remarkably present in a lot of the Islamic discourses about what you are responsible for. Um, now, there are things that you can for foresee bad possibilities, but you're not sure if they will take place, and it depends on a lot of other factors. And that, you know, I, so, you know, in, um, in the time when I did securities law, and the law firm I worked for uh, did defense work, it defended people, you know, the, um, some of the clients I didn't, clearly I didn't like, and I thought were sleazebags. But can, could I tell for sure that what they're doing will lead to evil and harm? If I could, then that was a problem for me. But if I couldn't, um, I did my job because we all have to perform a function for the totality of society to work. And that was part of my foreseeability, is that, you know, if you don't have people who do the defense part and people who do the prosecution part and people who do the judgment part, things are not going to work. Um, everyone is entitled to a, a defense. I'm not going to lie for you. I'm not going to make up stuff for you. But I'm going to represent your point of view, your perspective as to what your version of the facts are. And I and my conscience is comfortable with that because I'm representing your point of view for whatever it's worth. Um, and when I am sitting in the seat of judgment, I did that job faithfully and honestly um, as well. Because now I'm sitting in the seat of judgment, I'm not just representing a point of view of, of some for someone else. But, you know, I, the, the things like, um, you know, oh, let's look through the securities code and find a loophole and get you out of trouble. I, that type of stuff I just didn't have a stomach for. I just, you know, that's not the way the law should work. And I, I don't like that. I don't like that type of way of doing things. Um, what was the second part? I forgot. Um. How do we know when our guidance is divine oh, oh, and not oh, a fear yeah. ego or another force? You know, of course, listen, like like everything else, it is training and practice that improves you. When you first start, you will often confuse your ego with God. But I, will, I give you a warranty. A guarantee that if you seek God and you tell you honestly and sincerely tell God help me in this process your ability to catch your ego when it is inappropriately deflated uh, inflated and your ability to humble your ego and as you learn to humble your ego the voice of God will come flooding in and it is trial and error and practice. It is the same logic 
that you know how do you learn what good what food is good for you and what is not good for you how do you learn you know what type of activity can can burn your your fat and what activity doesn't burn your fat it's all trial and practice spirituality is very much like that it really is very much like that when you start you are extremely confused but as you if your intent is there subhanallah i mean this is time and again if your intent is with allah signs come to you and they come to you but you know in you you find people in your way that guide you towards purity you find when you intend to do something that is not good you find things not working like you find obstacles and but read the signs so you know i know from i can tell you stories from here to tomorrow about like people who were pious and they when they intended to do something bad things would happen like you know their car would break down or uh they get news right before they intended to go do the bad thing that would distract them if they chose to consistently ignore it and say no i'm gonna do what i intended to do then khalas then there then no obstacles are presented against sin but the closer to you the, the more you just the more uh, um, determined you are the more Allah floods your life and sends all types of things that direct you you know you could be you could reach a point where you say Allah I truly need guidance Allah okay I'm going to take the Quran I'm going to recite your name and I'm going to open it on a, on a page. I'm going to read the first ayah. And that could be your guidance. If you are determined to be with Allah, Allah floods your life. It's just people give up because people um, are impatient and people want short fixes. And people become too comfortable with the idea that what I feel is is what is right. Did you challenge your feelings? Did you try to say your feelings, you know, you're not the boss, my principles are the boss? Did you try to tell your feelings, I know that you're telling me to feel one way, but I'm going to listen to the, to the the language of principles the language of ethics and and eventually your feelings will remarkably become submissive it's just people don't believe that because they they're not accustomed to it uh, initially your your feelings are not at all submissive your feelings are very naughty your feelings are very resistant. They, they, they keep throwing all types of difficulties in your path. Eventually, your feelings 
become very well behaved. You know, when people talk about submission, that's what submission is. It's not slavery. It's when your feelings become consistent with what the heart longs for in Allah's love. They no longer call upon you to do something different than what your love for Allah calls upon you to do. When the first thing that upon meeting any person, talking to anyone, dealing with anything, is what does Allah want? And then your feelings follow suit. It, it, it is hard only when you're on the other side of the shore because you're not used to it. But if you stick to it, you can't believe how easy it becomes. It becomes a non-issue. In fact, you wonder, like, how was it that I used to have such a hard time with this? It seems so remote and so distant. You know, So you also discussed how when the stupor of death comes, some see terror and some see beauty. We all see the truth of everything. Does that mean that upon death we will see our own truth and so we will see our fate of heaven and thus comfort or our fate of hell and thus terror? If so, then this concept seems to disrupt other imagery you created in the previous or so halakha where you discuss how judgment day can take 10,000 or so earth or human years and how many of us will wait in discomfort for the outcome of our judgment, won't that mean that some of us, inshallah, will wait without fear or discomfort? And then also the concept of being, uh, of the being taking the wheel, is it driving us to our ultimate destination, heaven or hell? And if so, then what happens to us and what do we experience in death, in between death and judgment day? Yeah, I mean, of course, all of these are, uh, there, we're going to come back to a lot of these questions, but I'm going to try to say as much as I can about it now. Um, what happens upon death and um, the ultimate judgment? You can find, if you ask a lot of um, Ahl al-Hadith folks, they'll tell you that there's something called Azab al-Qabr that when you enter the, into your grave your accountability starts right away that you are confronted by angels that start literally going through your record and that you find out your temporary fate Now, it is possible, according to that point of view, and note, I'm, I'm talking here about the, the Ahl al-Hadith folks, not my position, but that you might be, you pay for your sins through punishment in your grave, in the state of barzakh, in the state of death, 
sufficiently that upon the day of judgment, the final day, that you are for, you you've paid up your bill. You're you're been you're you're basically um, your sins have been forgiven. Uh, you're settled your accounts, if you will. If of course your sins are numerous, then you're not going to be done. You, you, you'll pay in the state of Barzakh upon death, and you still have a lot more to pay in Hellfire. Um, and then those who are truly pure, that they find out the good news right after death in the state of Barzakh, and then in upon the, uh, the final, in the hereafter, there comes a confirmation and the real reward after that. Um, and there is a lot of hadith that they, they will cite about Azab al-Qabr and so on. That's not my school of thought. Um, I don't believe that Although, the, uh, I mean, the reason I'm pausing is because it's so popular among contemporary Muslims that I've even heard uh, Saudi shiuch said that if you don't believe in Azab al-Qabr, that you're not a Muslim, that you've apostated from the faith. Um, so, you know, and, and that's, that's a very heavy, one heck of a thing to accuse someone of. Um, but I believe that upon death, you are confronted by angels and that your reception upon death um, will reflect your status upon death. In, in other words, your presumptive position. Now, presumptive position means that you look like a person who screwed up, you look like a person who is on the brink, so you actually neither you're neither in a state of terror nor in a state of happiness or you're clearly someone in who looks like a person presumptively in in safety in in a pure good position now i underscore presumptive because presumptions are there to be overcome that's the presumptive position and according to that school of thought, which I follow, that you will know the, the, the presumption that you occupy will not surprise you. You will know that it is the, the presumptive position that you should be in. Your heart, because at that moment, it's like the, if you're on a plane and the plane is going to crash. And for the few moments before the plane crashes, everything is very clear. You know who you've been mean to, who you've been rude to, who you've been cruel with. You, you, you're, you're, everything becomes clear. Well, upon death, it's similar. Uh, you know, you will, you will not be surprised that you're in trouble. You will not be surprised that you're safe. You will not be surprised if you're in between. Now, the reason we have the day of judgment is because, you know, that's your presumptive position, but you, your accountability is something else because your accountability is totally comprehensive. When everyone that you've hurt takes away from your good deeds, 
I mean, that's the way you're going to pay up, you're going to settle your account. That people you're going to, you've hurt, are going to, you're going to have to pay, and there's no money to pay with. You, the only thing you can pay with is your hasanat, the currency of the time. Um, it could be that you're on the border and then you're in serious trouble because of the number of people you've hurt. Alternatively, you're, you could be on the border or even in, presumptively in the dark, but you've done a lot of things that accumulated hasanat in, in life because you've done a lot of good that resonated down for generations. And it could be then that you're forgiven and you find out that so, now, I want to talk about the, the, the long wait, is that I talked about traditions that say that the, the accountability, that it would, in earth time, it would be a very long time in earth time. And that some people that wait for judgment is going to be very hard because they will know their presumptive state upon death that will eat away at them and they will be under extreme anxiety and stress because they are hoping that their presumptive state is not their actual state and they will be begging and praying to Allah to forgive them and to let them pass anyway and there are people that will know that presumptively they, they've been in a good state and they think of their life and they say, you know, I have every reason to believe that I'm safe. And so the weight is not harsh on them. It's not hard and it's not anxiety filled and it's not a... That, these are the reports. Do I accept these reports? My mind is not made up. I actually don't know. I can't tell you if I believe that um, the wait for judgment is going to be, as some reports say, 40 years, 100 years, 300 years, or I believe that it will be pretty much instant in the absence of uh, earthly time. I don't know. Um, but I guess it doesn't really matter to me because what I worry a great deal about my state upon death, I, among the prayers that I pray, um, my regular dua that I do, um, I, I say, Allah make me among those that upon death the angels receive them saying salam and salama, because the Quran says that are those who will, upon death the angels will receive them saying salam and salama. So I say, Allah make me among those that the angels receive upon death saying salam and salama. And don't make me among those who are received in anger and condemnation. That's the regular dua that I do because I worry about that state. I've seen enough people dying that seem to experience real terror as in the process of death. Um, and, of course, you, you pray that whatever the weight is, and it really, I, I, I guess I 
does it that that ultimately I am upon death no I am on Allah's side that I am among I am counted among those who are Hezbollah and not Hezbollah Shaitan the party of Allah I think it is sufficient that you pray like that um, you know I, I you can either take these reports about the weight I mean the, the reason I, I I'm hedging and I'm is that I know the issues of transmission and narration about these reports about the weight for judgment every one of these reports has a problem in the way they're transmitted uh, some say well yeah each if you take each report individually it has a problem but if you take them cumulatively then they they tell you that there's going to be a weight that's not an argument I um, I accept. Uh, I need every report to at least pass the test of soundness for me to accept it on something as serious as accountability. Um, it's not a minor legal issue where I can you know forgive their own. But that that's the that's the point. So you know. When people die, yes, we, we, we often say nice things about them. Um, but we, even human beings, even human beings, when someone dies, we often know intuitively whether that person is going to be in trouble or not. Just intuitively. Uh, so how about angels? I mean, we, we, we have a sense when we're being honest with ourselves boy, you know, I don't want to be that person when my time comes, or, wow, I really envy that person. I want to be exactly like this person when my time comes. That's what we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about the final judgment, the, the it, that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and only from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, we're talking about from the presumptive positions. Professor uh, for this. How might one understand the statement regarding the jugular vein in relation to the concept of the breath of life within us? Does Allah give us his closeness to us as more than jugular vein, as somewhat referring to our very life source and soul being connected to him? I'm also thinking of juxtaposing the notion of breath of life with our own breathing and oxygen and that which travels in our blood or our veins, as if Allah's presence is far more profound and deeply embedded than we can fully understand. Yeah, I mean that, that's oh, that's. Song. Did you hear what I said? <laughs> I didn't have say, re repeat it because I, I think I. Sorry, uh, I didn't realize. It was <laughs> I think I it says it says jugular vein, right? Yes. How might one understand the statement regarding the jugular vein in relation to the concept of the breath of life within us? Does Allah give us His closeness to us as? Oh, more, breath of life. Okay. Uh, as more than jugular vein, as somewhat referring to our life source and soul being connected to Him. I'm also thinking of juxtaposing the notion of breath of life with our own breathing and oxygen and that which travels in our blood and veins, um, as if Allah's presence is far more profound and deeply felt, uh, deeply embedded than we can fully understand. 
No, actually, that's beautifully put. Um, th that's uh, closer to you than your juggler vein. Not your juggler vein, but closer to you than your juggler vein. And in and there is. I mean, what what you wrote. Echoes a lot of the beautiful writings in that you find in, in, in the Islamic tradition about Allah being the very breath of life and the very reality of life and that in fact they go beyond that because one of the core things is when the Prophet said that whoever wants to know them, know their God, they must know themselves. And that uh, there is no way to know God unless you know yourself. And they go then a step further and they say when you know yourself, you discover that the only real thing about you, the only your, your body is an illusion, your desires are an illusion, even your thoughts are an illusion. The only real, absolute thing about you is the breath of God. And so when some mystics like Hallaj, you know, when, when, when was, he maybe took it a bit too far, but when he say, uh, in this garb there is nothing but Allah, what he meant is, there, there is nothing of me. I am. I am. I don't exist. The only thing that really exists within me is the breath of Allah. Everything else is a corruption. So, uh, you know, when you, when especially you, you read Sufi writings that document their journey over Taqa and the realization that they are truly beautiful as human beings because Allah is beautiful and the only reality within them is the breath of Allah. Um, these are some of the most profound and remarkable and earth-shattering writings. Um, and they, they very much read like a love song for the divine. And there's so much of it. Uh, one of the things that I I always feel bad about is that people don't realize not how much unbelievably gorgeous music and poetry was composed in the Islamic tradition to just express what I, what you just what Grace just read that within there is nothing but the breath of God and the beauty of the breath of God. And it is just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. And it rather contrasts very um, harshly with the austere type of Islam that has been popularized by you know, various Wahhabi and Salafi movements.
Okay, assalamu alaikum. Thanks again for another insightful halakha. My question is from the surahs you've discussed thus far, specifically Surah Qaf, Surah Sajda, Surah Atur. The dhikr comes back to this reality or state of being or concept of patience. Why has your dhikr over the years continued to come back to this understanding of patience? Is your reading of patience as dhikr unique to your experiences or rooted within historical interpretations? No, it's absolutely rooted because the one of the first thing you learn, and not just by shuh, but even in the writings. I mean, if you read the writings of Sharani, for instance, just the, the most basic uh, writings on Ertaqa, the 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 first challenge that confronts you when you do dhikr is you get restless. Um, you, you just, we, we, you get restless because, frankly, when you first do it, it feels boring. What is this? I'm just sitting here. SubhanAllah, Muhammad, SubhanAllah, Muhammad, SubhanAllah, Muhammad, SubhanAllah, Muhammad, SubhanAllah, Muhammad, SubhanAllah, Muhammad, and, or Allah, 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 Allah. And, you know, after you do it initially, when you do it, it's like you're overcome by restlessness and boredom. To be very blunt. But when you, when, when you persevere and the patience kicks in, that's when the futuhat starts. When suddenly you find that there is nothing you want to do more than steal, literally steal, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, so that you can sit and say, Allah, 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 or SubhanAllah, Muhammad, because it has moved from being a tedious, boring thing to something that just gives you an enormous amount of tranquility and clarity and... It's like you, you, it even gets to the point where you, well, I, I can't make a decision without having a session first. Um, patience is, it, there is no irtika without the virtue of patience. If you don't discipline your impatient self, the impatient self that gets bored, gets annoyed, gets irritated, um, that always thinks it deserves better than what it's getting, that always wants things to speed up and wants results, immediate results. I dare say there is no Ertukopa. It's, it's just not possible. It's just not possible. Patience is a critical quality that you teach yourself through hard, hard work. You know, you, you, you will literally be sitting doing dick and you will feel the urge to just get up and distract yourself with anything. And you tell yourself, no, you're going to sit and you're going to keep doing it. And eventually, it just becomes second nature to you. But initially, it's hard. Um, and, you know, remember that we don't raise our kids with this. We don't teach our children this. 
So when you learn it as an adult, it's even much harder. It's like learning to ride a bicycle as an adult or learning to skate as an adult or, you know, everything we do as an adult is harder. Uh, and that is why, you know, why, why we, you know, we used to have our children memorize the Quran and we were used to teach them dhikr at a very early age so it becomes natural to them. But all of that has, subhanAllah, has evaporated in our de-Islamized world, thoroughly colonized universe. Uh, the 12 attributes uh, mentioned earlier, are these linear steps of spiritual elevation? Uh, that, that's um, the, normally, normally the answer is no. Um, they say that if you try to do it in a linear fashion, you become overwhelmed and you give up. And, but this is the thing, is that the, these 12 steps, normally you do them with a sheikh that takes you through each step and the, um, the exercises, I, I call them exercises because they are for each step, that, you know, you work on a step, but of course it's not like you work on a step and you perfect it. But you work on a step until you go through all the awrad, all the um, ibadat that for that step, and you work on internalizing before you move to the next. What did those Arabic words mean? Awrad? Um. Oh. Um, the, um, the, um, the, the, um, um, Litany. The litany that you have to repeat, the 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 exercises that you have to do. I mean, it's like, so you know, uh, and but tariqas differ a lot, and shiuch differ a lot. So, you know, some shiuch when let's say if they're working on um, um, the issue of dignity. There are a million different ways that shiuch could teach this, and there are very good. There are shiuch that are very good teachers, and there are shiuch that are not very good teachers. I mean, it's like everything in life. Uh, there, in in um, in the old world, there were shiuch that were in very high demand because they got results, and there were shiuch that were not in very high demand. There were also hidden gems. Like Rabbi Al-Adawiyah, for instance, um, a lot of the shiuch, by the way, were Sufi women. Just keep that in mind. Um, like Rabbi Al-Adawiyah, who didn't have a lot of students, but when she did accept students, it, it, it was amazing. I mean, the, she seemed to know exactly what to do. Um, Yeah. If you're working on them on your own, I, I would say 
a constant reminder to yourself that these are the qualities and attributes that you want to work on and catch yourself when you are failing in one of them um, because if you if you don't catch yourself if basically you're saying oh I'm doing it but but you're not harsh with yourself you don't confront yourself when you mess up uh, then you're not really working on them the, the key is to to confront yourself when you mess up uh, and that you don't give yourself excuses so if you lose your temper and you start screaming you know, you, you can't just say, oh, well, but they, you know, aggravated me and they were really annoying and they, you know, did what... Uh, no, no, you, you, you have to be stern with yourself, especially if you don't have a teacher. Uh, if you have a teacher, then the teacher can do the sternness for you. <clears throat> but if you don't, my advice is don't, don't be so quick to cut yourself a break. What is considered coercion in Islam? Well, you know, um, I'm not going to give you a, a legal response, but an ethical response. A coercion is, we, we have many demonstrative examples from the tradition, like when a man came to the Prophet and said, I converted to Islam, but my children refused to convert. They were Christian. Can I force them? And the Prophet said, no, you can't. So that's a clear example of a question. You can't force someone to, to be a Muslim. But you can't force an adult to pray. You can't force an adult to fast. You can't force an adult to, as some families do, wear hijab when you, you can, as a, a child is a different matter because you're raising them. But, you know, I'm not advocating that you force your child to, to, to um, well, anyway. But you can, like, you know, say, create incentive systems and punishments for your child to teach them prayer, to teach them fasting, to teach them whatever. Uh, but when it comes an, to an adult, any ibadah that is coerced doesn't count. And as I said, it breeds hypocrisy. Um, and in my view, I go even beyond that. And I think that despotism, autocracy, dictatorship is a sin. That a government that is dictatorial is offending Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for me, the Saudi government, for instance, is sinning against Allah. There is no way it can be Islamic because it's dictatorial, because it, people cannot you know, say what they want to say People cannot leave the country freely. People cannot express themselves freely. You, people can disappear in prison and be tortured and, and lose their life. And there, there's no way you can hold the state accountable for anything. Um, that's dictatorship. Uh, you know, the idea, one of the things that the, the authoritarian government in Egypt 
has taught, has infected the institutions of Azhar with dictatorship. Dictatorship at every strata, and I'll tell you what dictatorship has created in Azhar and in the Ministry of Al-Qaf in Egypt is corruption. Rampant corruption and rampant hypocrisy. I don't know what piety means anymore. You know, it, it, when the most decent shiuch at Azhar basically have to stop working, receiving a salary from Azhar to be able to live ethically, that's what dictatorship does. That's what despotism does. And it is the idea of an autocrat or a despot or a dictator that is somehow achieving Allah's will is shirk, it's kuf, it, it is the worst of sins. And the, the, the sooner we realize this as Muslims, I think the sooner we will get out of the mess we're in. Uh, because I think Allah's blessings will start coming to us. Uh, Allah doesn't like anyone to share Allah's authority. And when when a human being acts as an absolute dictator, they're, they're sharing Allah's authority. That Allah doesn't accept. Okay, um, going back to ayahs 39 and uh, specifically 40, or especially 40, can the idea of proclaiming his glory after each prayer and the day cycles also mean that we remember and feel Allah's presence all day long, so all our life and acts are dhikr and tasbih? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, tasbih is not what you just say with the sipha or just when you say subhanakallah that that's of course it, it, it's a, it elevates the soul it cleans it, it it acts like a cleanser it actually cleans your spirit when you sit and do that but every act that you do with Allah in Allah's with Allah in full view could become an act of tasbih. I'll tell you something that is um, uh, very, um, uh, uh, something that I, I have not been, I've aspired to, but I have not been able to do. Um, when we were younger, I mean, when we were kids, we would go shopping with my mother. And Wallahi al-Azim, the way my mother would shop, I would feel that she's engaged in an act of ibadah. Um, she would be, like the way she would pick things and put them and, 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 and pay for them and then take them to the car, she would be so grateful that, I mean, it, you would think like she was the poorest woman in the world, you know, thanking God that she could buy a yogurt. But she wasn't. I mean, it was like, oh, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Oh, can you take this and, you know, don't forget, say, bismillah before you put it in the car. And say, bismillah before you take it out of the car. And take bismillah when you take it to the kitchen. Oh, alhamdulillah, 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 alhamd
and Allahumma dimhan na'am alina constantly and and I would honestly I would feel like my mother going grocery shopping was a spiritual experience um, of course you know she passed away but the I haven't been able to do that. I mean, to, to turn your grocery shopping into a spiritual experience <laughs> is, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, for her, I would say grocery shopping was tasbih. Um, as well as so many other things. I mean, I, I mean, the funniest thing is that um, she used to do, I mean, of course, nothing like what, we, we do these days, you know, we didn't have gyms, we didn't have, but my mother would always exercise in the morning. And we were always, because in, in, when we grew up, women exercising was weird. I mean, that's what, like, the, the, the westernized aristocracy people did. And there were no gyms and so on. So we all thought it was very strange. Like, why the heck do you exercise in the morning? And again, you know, hair hair version of exercise, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, subhanAllah, I mean, she would always say, oh, Allah wants us to take care of this body, and so I am doing this exercise to do my part, to preserve the body that Allah gave us. And so even her exercising in the morning was an act of tasbih. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I, 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 you know, when I exercise, I, if I, I don't exercise, but if I exercise, I'm huffing and puffing and feeling really irritated and annoyed and hate the world and hate myself and hate existence. So I don't know how she did it. Okay, Salam, when I, when I read Ayahs 36 and 37, I can't help but think of our current situation with the pandemic. To me, these verses seem to speak to us today. Maybe after this pandemic, we will be, quote, those wandering on the face of the earth, seeking no more than a place of refuge. Is this a fair analogy to make? You know, if it spoke to you personally in that way, then it's fair. The Allah, remember that the revelation speaks to us individually. And if this is what resonated with you, then it is the truth that you must reflect on. Um, it didn't occur to me, but now that you mention it, I'm struck by it. Okay. And my other question is about the angel recording our deeds. I've heard an additional opinion that what is on our left is a jinn. Is there any validity to that opinion? Thank you. Yeah, no. The, that, that, that opinion is very, very weak, and that's why I didn't mention it. Um, it. It has a biblical origin. Um, you know, the idea of a, 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 an angel on your right and an angel on your left um, is in the biblical tradition as well, but they're, they're among the Christian theologies that existed early on is that what's actually on the right is an angel and what's actually on the left is a demon. Um, and that moved in, that was 
moved into the Islamic tradition in the opinion that, well, it, it's an angel and a jinn instead of a demon. But it's when you actually look at the chains of transmission and who said it, and um, I would count it among the Israeliyat, the Israelite um, traditions that moved into Islam that have no credibility. Okay, anybody else have any questions here? Okay, so I'll end with this one, which I think came through. I, I'm Okay, well, I'll just read it. Salaamu Alaikum. Is Islam a political party, and is expansionism part of its character? <laughs> this is, I figured, the entertainment for the evening. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, Islam is not a political party. Um, um, let's be, you know, I'll, I'll turn this question into something useful. Um, <laughs> where's Cheyenne? Oh. Uh, because he, he, he's the one that's obsessed with me turning questions into things. Yeah, we got a question. Wait, let's, yeah, tell Cheyenne the question. The question is, is Islam a political party and is it expansionist? <laughs> no, is expansionism part of its character? Is, is expansion part of its character? You know, the, the, there is, uh, this is interesting because it relates to the khutbah that I, I was giving. Remember that with the Jewish tradition, the, the Jewish message, with the Jewish message came a state, and a state that built the temple and defended the temple and defended the Jewish state for a period of time, but the, the political entity that was born out of the, um, the Israelite tradition and the message of Moses and so on. Upon the, the defeat of that state and the destruction of the temple and the enslavement of the Jews, it had a clear erosive impact upon the Jewish message. And all you can, if you read the, the Old Testament, the the whole narrative about the enslavement of the Jews and the sto stories, whether you know, such a story of Lilith and uh, not Lilith, what's her name? Um, the the woman who who uh, 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 tricks the the Persian king and Esther. then Esther, Esther, um, and the story of Esther and, and the the obsession was the promised land and the chosen people and the promised land and so the 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 defeat of the political state resulted in the corruption of the theology into a a, a tribal narrative of a promised land and a a, a the the fascination was a political entity that would protect the Israelite people. Christianity, Jesus died before he had an opportunity to do anything. 
he, he came for a very short period, preached the same the same gospel of that we John the Baptist had. John the Baptist was martyred. Jesus, at least in Christian belief, was killed or martyred. Um, and immediately, the persecution of the Roman Empire was in full force. And you had the, the confrontation between Paul and the keepers and the Jews who remained in, or, or the Jews with in, in, the, in, the, in the temple. Uh, John and and the Romanization of Christian theology to adapt to political powerlessness. The Islamic message in that day and age, can you imagine if an Islamic state didn't exist? If an Islamic state didn't exist to preserve the Quran, to preserve theological discourses, to allow for the gathering of the tradition of the Prophet, can you imagine what would have happened to the Islamic message? Without a political state at that time, would the Quran have been preserved? Do you think the traditions of the Prophet would have been collected? Do you think that Muslims would have been able to engage Christians and Jews in discourses and have the, the literary tradition that was born? It would have been an absolute massacre, a wipeout. And the corruption of the Islamic message, if it survives, it would have had to mutate and adapt like Christianity did in order to survive. Now, once an Islamic state was born, the logic of that day, the law of nations, until the birth of the League of Nations, and even the League of Nations was a failure, and then we had the United Nations, the, the law was the law of expansion. You either expanded or you died. That, that was the way the world was organized. The idea that, oh, you know, you could live in peace and exist. And no, that's, it, it, that's contrary to history. <laughs> history was that you conquered. And conquering was survival. That's the way you brought... Re and people were accustomed to the idea that I, you know, I, I am farming my land. Today I could have an Egyptian king. Tomorrow I could have a Persian king. After tomorrow I can have a king from the Hittites and someone who could come from Abyssinia and be my king. As long as I'm farming the land, I don't care. That was the logic of the day. Of course, you know, we went through world wars and so on, then we came up with the idea of the United Nations, and the United Nations is a big treaty. And it's a treaty that says, okay, no more use of force. From now on, we're going to resolve things peacefully. Has it worked? It hasn't worked. So even, it, it's a wonderful idea. And an idea that I believe is far more consistent with Islam than the logic of expansion. Far more consistent. Far more ethically present and demanding and incumbent. 
But if anything, Muslims should work harder to fulfill the ideals of peace. The ethical imperative of peace that, that the world often does not allow people to live with is something that we should aspire to achieve in a fair and more just world. In a world that really does prohibit the use of force. Not prohibit the use of force by the weak. But the strong can use the, all the force that they want. They can bomb whoever they want. They can assassinate whoever they want. They can even defeat and confiscate whatever land they want. I mean, who gave Israel the right to take the Golan Heights? Or the West Bank? Who gives the, the U.S. the right to invade and occupy Iraq and invade and still control Afghanistan? Why is Britain still in the Falklands? Why, why are colonies even still a part of Iraq? Why is French authority and power present in so many of the African former colonies? It's because of the logic of expansionism is still there. So is the logic of expansion part of Islam? No, it's part of the world, my friend. Okay. Okay. On that note, last call for questions in the room. That's a great way to end. Okay. Thank you so much, and um, thank you for joining us, everybody. Inshallah, we'll see you Tuesday night for uh, Halakha. We'll be doing um, Surah Al-Muzamah, number seven, Inshallah. Okay. Have a great rest of the weekend. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Assalamu alaikum.